I want to add my welcome to you this morning, both here and if you're visiting with us online. Also, for those of you who are going to join us online sometime other than this morning, uh, we know that many people have the opportunity now to catch up on uh, worship uh, at any time during the week because it's available online. It is a new day. It's a new age, and we are exploring what it might look like for us to be a new church for a new age. And it's hard to know because uh, we don't know what the future is going to look like. And we don't know, uh, you know how to uh, make the changes that maybe we need to make to be a positive influence and to revitalize the life of our church in the 21st century. But what we do know is that we have a God who knows. Amen? And we don't have to know all the details. What we can do is we can go back to God's Word and we can engage with God's Spirit and we can put ourselves in conversation with God's people. And if you've been with us for the last few months, you know that we have identified here at Faith Covenant Church that there's three primary ways that God invites us to connect with Him. That's through His Word, through His Spirit, and through His people. And the most powerful experience we can have as Christians is when you put all three of those together at one time. And so we've been working through our series called Live Your Why, which is a follow-on from our series at the beginning of the fall called Know Your Why. And we've been talking about how our ultimate why is found at the intersection of our passions and God's will for our life. And what we mean by that is that we believe through what the Bible tells us is that we've been created by God and shaped by God in in our uniqueness and that the the passions and the hopes and the dreams and the, the preferences that we have are designed in us by the God who made us. And when we discover how God has formed and shaped us, to be used by his will for the purpose that he has created us and the call of his kingdom, we discover our greatest why for living in this world. If you think about who we are created to be and who we are called to be, the focus of both of those is on us, but the source of each of those is from God. And so the Bible tells us that we were designed by God on purpose and for a purpose to be a part of the creation that he has made and that he sent his son to redeem and that he promises to bring to wholeness and completion at the end of time. Therefore, we come to realize that in order to truly know your why, you ultimately have to go to the source of creation itself and the source of calling to understand why you were created the way you were created and what God may have for you to do for the purposes of his kingdom and the why of his calling. We learn from the Bible that Jesus came to redeem all of creation and the brokenness of sin and evil that has marred God's good creation and to usher in the kingdom of God. Therefore, we have to understand that it is in Jesus that our own created human nature as part of the creation is being redeemed by God in Christ, and it is in service to the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate under the lordship of Christ in our own lives that we begin to discover and live out our ultimate purpose in life. We've said to know your why is the first step, and we do that through God's word and in relationship to Christ, but then to live your why is the next step. But that then begs the question, doesn't it, is how do we begin to live our why? 
And I think a big part of this current series is to suggest for us that one of the most important things that we can identify about learning to live your why as a Christian is that you were never meant to do it alone. I've said for many years, Christianity is a team sport where everybody plays, And that what the church is supposed to be for us and by us is a huge part of the mission and vision that God gives to church today to help you and me learn and know and live our why. Now, I'd suggest that we could easily spend weeks, if not years, unpacking the question, how do you live your why? Because really, that's what discipleship to Jesus is all about. And it's a lifelong journey of faith and trust and hope and community and relationship and partnership and failure and sin and forgiveness and grace and mercy and all of the things that the Bible talks about, what it means to live in this kingdom of God that we have been invited to participate in through God's mercy and grace and forgiveness in our lives which then tells us that knowing our why and living our why as a faith community together in relationship and in partnership is equally important and is a critical part of our ability to fulfill our purpose and calling individually and together as the body of Christ in the world. We can't really separate our why from the church's why and God's call to live in Christian community together. Now, one of the biggest challenges that we've identified in this series is that in many ways, the culture of church that we experience today seems to be no longer relevant or effective to reach a lost and a hurting culture in which we find ourselves. The mission field has come to the front door of the church, but we haven't figured out what God's call is for us to be able to live differently and to move differently and able to be relevant to reach a new generation for Christ. To be more effective at creating, uh, one of the biggest challenges is that the, the way we've experienced church as we look at it today often is better at creating good church attenders than it is developing disciples who know and live their why. And the reality is, for the most part, you can be a really good church attender and not actually be following Jesus. I can even go one step further and to say, if we're really honest and we really look at at some of the trends in church culture today, at least in America, in many ways, you can even be a really good pastor in the church today and not be following Jesus. You see, what we discover in the Bible is that your ability to know and to live your why is an important indicator of the health and the vitality of of the church you belong to. Because in Jesus, your personal mission, your calling in Christ, your why, who you were created to be and who you were called to be by God intersects directly with the mission of the church as the body of Christ in the world and those who are called and sent by Jesus to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. In fact, like I said, we can't have one without the other. Because the church isn't a place, it's a people. 
It's a community of people, the Bible says, created and called by Jesus to follow Jesus as Lord, to become more and more like Jesus in our personality, in our character, in our relationships with one another, and ultimately to participate in the mission of Jesus to bring God's love and grace and forgiveness to a lost and a hurting world. In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus said, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people, fishers of people. And so we've been saying that uh, we believe that we're at an inflection point as a church, and we've talked a little bit about this new term that, that, that's come into our consciousness. An inflection point is a math term, and it describes the point at which the values of a graph change. They change from a negative to a positive or from a positive to a negative, and it's the change of value in the math formula that actually alters the curvature and the trajectory of the graph. So you can see at the crossroads, the inflection point begins on the left, but then the turning point happens much later. And we can see the next slide, the turning point where you actually see the visual change of trajectory comes later. Because the change starts, if we use this as an analogy for our spiritual lives, with a change of heart, and a change of mind, and a change of understanding who we are and who God is calling us to be in the world. And so if we're at an inflection point as a church in our society, in America, in the 21st century... What is the value that needs to change from a negative to a positive that will begin to put us on a new trajectory to experience a new reality of Christ's mission and his call for our lives as Christians and as a church in the world? Now, we've also identified that we have to know what our culture is before we can know how to change our culture to something new, right? And we identify our culture, we've identified by what we value. Our culture, our behavior, what we choose to do, the way we do things around here, if we really dig down to the bare bones foundation, is driven by what we value the most. And we identify what we value by the outcomes that we invest and work to achieve. What we value can be seen in how we spend our time, how we spend our money, what we choose to measure, what we choose to reward. And we can apply these formulas to churches as well as to our own individual lives, right? If you want to know what you value, if you want to know the culture of your home and your family, if you want to know the, the culture of the people that you associate and you hang with, look at where they spend their time, look at where they spend your, their money, look at what they choose to measure and how they attribute success, and look at what they choose to reward and to celebrate. Missiologist Alan Hirsch says most churches fail to innovate and to change, to experience life transformation as faith communities because they don't understand what true innovation really entails. And we also introduced this innovation formula that requires three ingredients. It requires imagination, implementation, and integration. And imagination means that we have to be able to imagine a different possible future. 
And many churches today are failing to be able to imagine a different possible future. All we know is what we've experienced, and we know the world has changed, and we know that it's becoming less and less favorable to Christ and to Christians, and we know that, that we live in a polarized society that's become over-politicized, and that there's all kinds of strife and difficulty, and we don't know how to lead as a church in the midst of this new reality we live in. All we know is where we've been, but we don't know how to get where we're going. And then even if we begin to imagine things that we might do, uh, implementation is that next step. We have to be able to stick with it long enough and follow through so that we can be successful at doing what we say we want to do. And I'd like to suggest that in the midst of implementation, especially for the church, we often think too individualistically about this, that, that we can give you good information at church, and then your job is to go out in your life and apply that and, and experience life transformation on your own. But as I said at the beginning, that's what church means, is that you're never meant to do it alone. And so I'd like to suggest if we're going to be successful as a church of implementing the mission and vision that we believe God is giving us, the only way we're going to be successful at that is by sticking with it together and training one another how to live life differently. And that's not a quick fix. It's not add water and stir. It's a slow journey of life transformation, trusting in God's Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and to stay united together. For that purpose. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about integration, the third part. And, and, and I think this is where missiologist Alan Hurst says most churches get it wrong. I mean, we can imagine dreams and we can implement strategies, but, but we fail to understand that the ultimate goal is true integration. And integration means that, that the new behavior, the new activity, the new uh, uh, way of being in the world isn't just some technique, but it's become a lifestyle that we're living together. It's the new normal. It becomes, well, just the way we do things around here. And then it's not a program of the church. It's a lifestyle that we're experiencing and living together. And then we actually have something to invite people to experience with us. And so we're not inviting them to come to church to experience an event or a program. We're inviting them into our lives to share life and to see how you can live differently in this age and in this day in a way that honors God and experiences the presence and the power and the fulfillment of His Spirit. And so we've begun to talk about how we can begin to identify the values that need to shift in order for us to begin to imagine a different possible future. As we imagine what will it look like, we, we, we ask what would it look like if the church was less about accumulating people and more about deploying people into the world? As we think about implementing on that vision and we ask, well, how would we do that? What if we began to, to value the question of moving from simply informing people and giving them good information to actually spend the time training and equipping people to be successful in their lives outside of church? And today I'd like to suggest if we're truly going to experience integration of the new normal that I believe God is leading us to, we will have to define success differently and we'll have to move from valuing programs and events at the church to purpose and developing people to discover their own calling and mission in life. 
You see, the ultimate goal in integration is to experience new habits, new behaviors, and maybe we aren't even familiar with what those would be yet. New ways of acting and living in relationship together that move us beyond some church technique or some grand strategy to grow the church but that we seek to implement, but that it becomes the natural, normal way of what it means to live life in this world through the power and the presence of Christ in our life. So maybe some questions we could begin to, to ask one another, for example, is in our vision, do we imagine how do we grow a church? Or do we imagine how to grow disciples? And what might be the difference? In order to implement on our mission and vision, do we ask how to plan to give people more good information so that that information they can go and apply in their lives? Or do we ask how do we give people good training and mentoring so they can be successful at applying the information that we're given? And how might that look different than the way we're experiencing church today? Or in order to achieve the full integration of the new normal that maybe God is leading to us into as a faith community, will we continue to measure how many people we can stuff into a church building as our definition of success as Christians? Or will we begin to measure how many people are discovering and living out their calling in Christ in the world? And how do you even begin to measure that? You see, the reality I'd like to suggest is that we, if we achieve the latter in each of these values, we'll actually achieve the former. But it's not necessarily true the other way around. And I think that's where we've gotten off track with what our true values are supposed to be as Christians in the church. It's not an either-or, it's a shift in how we understand what God is calling us to do and approach life and ministry together in our day. Because again, the reality is that people don't come to church. <laughs> they are the church. And so the shift begins when our clear goal and vision as a church is no longer to accumulate people or to impart information or to create an emotional experience on Sunday morning that's going to get people to come back again next Sunday. But rather, our goal needs to be to actually develop and equip people successfully living the Christian life in their homes and in their marriages and as families and in the workplace and in their neighborhoods. Our goal needs to become making disciples of all nations, teaching people how to follow Jesus, how to become like Jesus, and how to participate in the mission of Jesus in the world. Men and women, this isn't a new calling. This is Jesus calling through the ages. And at this stage of our life and ministry as a church in the 21st century, what we're learning is that this is going to require a new imagination. And it's going to require implementing new behaviors together, working to innovate and experience a new integration of life and ministry together. So today I want to wrap up our series by giving us four biblical principles that I think can guide us into living our why together. In order for each of us to come together as part of the church and as a part of this church, as the body of Christ in the world, I want to suggest the first thing that it will require of us is humility. 
James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And in a culture, in a society that no longer values humility, but is all about pride and arrogance and shouting down your opponents and being right, we've lost the ability to be good. But if we can learn again by humbling ourselves under the lordship of Christ and humbling ourselves and submitting to one another how to be good to one another, boy, we may have something to actually offer people out there in the world. We need to learn to lead like Jesus in our lives and in our churches and in our homes and in our friendships. Matthew 20, 25 to 28 says, Jesus called all of his disciples together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A change in value is a change in culture. And so it requires us to begin to to rediscover a new sense of what servant leadership is really all about. What does it look like for us as a church to be a servant leader to our culture, to our community, to our non-Christian friends and neighbors? Again, rather than trying to rule over others with the authority of Scripture and with the truth of the Bible and with the fact that we're on the inside of the church and they're not, How do we humble ourselves and understand that if if we serve others in love, that people might begin to see and to experience the mercy and the grace of God and actually come to faith in Jesus? Matthew 23, 11 and 12, he said, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. Men and women, this is the upside down change of values of the kingdom of God that somehow I think we've lost touch with in the 21st century in the church in America. We know these verses, but we've lost the values. The second value that we can focus on that we're drastically missing in in today's culture and often even in the church is unity. Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort. Don't try. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Where in, in our culture today do you see people making every effort to stay united with, with someone else? It's not a value we hold anymore. And even in the church in America, we're fracturing because we've lost the value of unity and we, 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 we think it's more important to be right than to be loving. It's more important to separate our fellowship over politics than it is the love of Christ. How can we be a light in the darkness when in the very church that that is under the lordship of Christ, we're living out the values of our culture and not the value of God's kingdom and the value of unity in the spirit and the bond of peace? Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
in our polarized and divided society, if we can find a new way to be the church and to model a different way under the lordship of Christ and the influence of God's spirit, living out a new culture of God's kingdom among us, it will require that we come together in genuine unity through the bond of God's spirit among us. We have to really get good at being able to walk hand in hand as Christians, even when we don't see eye to eye. We're not always going to agree on everything. My politics are not going to be your politics. You may think racism exists or you may think it doesn't exist, but should we stop fellowshipping and worshiping together as Christians over the issue of whether racism is real or not? Can't we talk about it? Can't we wrestle with Scripture and wrestle with the newspaper and see where God is leading us and how we can lead and have a voice in our culture? If we can't be united in faith, how can we unite others to Christ? But in order to do that, it really leads us to the third principle or value that we really have to focus on, which I think is severely lacking in our culture and in many of our churches, and that is maturity. The Bible calls us to grow into maturity in Christ. And, and without maturity, it can be hard to, to remain humble and to stay united because we have a tendency to, to revert to our adolescent selves, right? Where, where the world is really all about me and I'm still trying to figure out who I am and, and, and I'm really kind of more of a taker than a giver. I haven't even really gotten a job yet or figured out how to provide for someone else or my family. I haven't become a parent and become responsible for someone else's life. So how much of our, our cultural values are, are really more adolescent because we've become immature and we've lost the depth of character and the ability to remain humble and stay united because there's a greater purpose than our own preferences and needs and wants? Parents with teenagers, amen? <laughs> the reality is that we are more like our teenagers than we're willing to admit. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, says, So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, all these people in the church to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become what? Mature. Because what happens when we become mature is that we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Does that sound like something that you want in your life? I know I do. Do we even know what that looks like today? The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Man, if you went to a church and you experienced the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that would probably be a place that, that people wanted to go to, don't you think? But it might not look like what we imagine. He goes on in verse 14 to say, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by every uh, news organization, whether it's CNN or Fox News or, or PBS or NPR and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming and their propaganda. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of Him who is the head, 
that is Christ. Men and women, it is time for us in the church to grow up. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. How does it do that? From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Christianity is a team sport where everyone plays. Are you in the game? In order for us to speak the truth in love to one another and to our neighbors and to a world that desperately needs the good news of Jesus, we have to develop a level of maturity in Christ that values the growth and the development and the welfare and the care of other people above our own wants and preferences and above our own truth claims. And that sees that we each have a part to play in bringing the fullness of Christ into one another's lives. And if we're not all playing, if we're not all participating, we can't experience the fullness. Because Jesus needs you to be a part in order to have completion, in order to have fullness. If any one is missing, we don't have completion. And so how do we create a culture where it's not 80% of the people who, who do the taking and 20% of the people who do the giving. I mean, that's a statistic that's been thrown around for years. I don't know exactly how true it is, but we know that it's not a level playing field, right? How do we create a culture where you guys are actually engaging and talking with one another more rather than just me being a talking head up on the platform once a week where you're taking great information, but then you go back out into the world and, and, and you maybe forget by tomorrow what we even said today. I forget what I said last Sunday. Information is imp important and it's good, but it doesn't necessarily lead to life change. What leads to life change? God's Word combined with God's Spirit in the context of God's people. And you put them all together, and now you've got something going on. The last one I'll mention today, which is probably the, the most critically important one that we have to get a handle on and remember because it's easy for us in our culture of performance and, and um, you know, can do, execute on everything and build your life, you know, building a stairway to heaven, is that the only way we can do this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. We began this series with the vision and promise from God given to the prophet Isaiah that in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic malaise in which we find ourselves where we don't know what the future holds and we don't know what the new normal is going to be and we're continuing to have to wrestle with all of the anxiety and the depression and the polarization of life in this world that he's given a vision of hope in the midst of difficult time that he gave to the people of Israel while they were in exile in the midst of Babylon. In the words of Isaiah 55, 12, if you've been here and you remember, it says that you will go out with joy. And you will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. And we said how this is a, a, a vision that, that God says there is hope. 
And there is joy and there is peace in your future, but you have to understand that it's only going to come from Him. That the joy and the peace comes as you lift up your eyes from your circumstances and you realize that all of creation is speaking of the glory of God and you as a part of that creation were designed to do the same. And it doesn't matter what your life circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your hopes and dreams are. What matters is that God has given you the gift of his mercy and his grace and he is with you at every moment and you can experience the joy and peace of his presence anywhere you go and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we sang today, right? I want to add to that. I think there's another word that God has for us from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah prophesied to the people of Israel after they returned from their 70 years in exile in Babylon. It was a prophetic vision to anticipate the completion of the rebuilding of the temple and ultimately the coming and future reign of the Messiah. And as we think about maybe in this age where we're coming out of exile in the pandemic and we're, we're rebuilding the temple of the church and we're imagining what it will look like to, to have a rebuilt church to come to completion, the words of Zechariah 4, 6 says, So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who was the king at the time, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Can I suggest that as Western Christians, as can-do Americans, it's really hard for us to even imagine what it means to not do something with might or with power, but simply by the Spirit of God. You see, whatever is going to happen, whatever our church is going to be, whatever your why is going to be, however we're going to live for Christ, it's not going to be something that you or I can do for God. It's only going to be something that God can do in us and through us when we submit ourselves in humility to the Lordship of Christ and live in unity of faith with the believers and allow Him to grow the maturity of Christ's character in us so that we can begin to live every day and in every way by the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the vision of the Bible for what the church is supposed to be. Isn't that what happened at Pentecost, right? They're all gathered in the upper room and they're like, oh no, they killed Jesus. Are they going to kill us? What's going to happen? We, we, we live in a society that doesn't understand, that doesn't want this good news, that isn't open to the kingdom. And Jesus is now gone. He's not here. What's it going to look like? How do we, how do we live life? What's going to be the new normal? And they come together in humility and in unity. And, and in maturity, they recognize that they're not going to solve it themselves. And so they, they, they lift up their hearts and their minds and their spirits to God. And what does God do? He sends the Spirit. And everything changes. And it wasn't about how good they were. It wasn't about what God wanted them to accomplish. It wasn't about anything that had to do with how good they were or what they could achieve for God. It was all about what God wanted to do in them. Because when we allow God to do his work in us, then he can do his work through us. Not by might, not by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask for a little pastoral privilege because I know we're over time and I have a lot more I want to say. And I think this is an important season of life for our church and so I'm going to ask for your forgiveness and your indulgence. At our leadership team meeting this month, we prayed through Isaiah 43, 16 to 21. And I believe this too is a word from God for the church today that we can wrestle with and we can uh, walk through. And I just want to make two quick points, but let me read you the passage. It's probably familiar to you. In verse 16, it says, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and the horses, the army and reinforcements together, and there they lay, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, see I'm doing a new thing, now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness, uh, streams in the wasteland. The wild animals will honor me and the jackals and the owls because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Two quick points. God says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Through God's Spirit, we can sense and we can perceive when the Spirit is moving, when the Spirit is speaking, when we're called by God to a destiny that we don't understand, but we can perceive is happening. God is saying it's not going to be something that you're going to know or understand or be able to see with clarity right away. You've got to trust me. But can't you sense that it's happening? Can't you sense that something new is going on? You don't have to create it. You don't have to manufacture it. All you have to do is trust in me and follow me and see what I'm going to do. The second thing he says, he's doing two impossible things. I'm making a way in the wilderness, and I'm making streams in the wasteland. These things should be impossible. These don't happen in nature. These aren't normal occurrences in life. I'm doing something new. I'm doing something you can't imagine. I'm doing the impossible. You think the church is dead in America and has no influence? Think again. You think that this church is dying and is not going to have a new season of life? Think again. You think that your life is over, that you've been used, and, and there's nothing more that you can contribute to God's kingdom, and you have no way to really influence a, a lost and a hurting world around you? Think again. I'm doing a new thing. Don't you perceive it? I'm going to do the impossible if you just believe it. All right, last story. You remember the Peter and John, right? Jesus is risen. He's gone to heaven. The disciples are living out church. They're creating the new normal. And in Acts 3, verses 1 through 10, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. 
So the man gave him his attention and expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Men and women, can I suggest to you that we are trying to do church in our day, in the 21st century, with our silver, with our gold, with the things that we have power to control, with what we have to give. And all the while, God has given us a thing that no man can do, the power and the healing of the presence of Christ. And we now to learn again how to stop trying to do ministry in our own strength, in our own power, and trust the power of the Holy Spirit and give the miraculous life-giving gift of Jesus Christ to those who desperately need it. What God wants to do among us is not something that we can do in our own strength. It's not something we can create. It's not something we can manufacture. It's not a new program. It's not three easy steps to live your why. (laughs) Which I'm sorry if that's what you're hoping for in this sermon. (laughs) What God wants to give to the world around us and to you and me is what no man can do but God can do through the power of His Spirit. The challenge is we don't like change. Many people in life won't change, can't change, refuse to pay the cost of change because change is hard. Change is difficult. It takes effort. It takes sacrifice. It takes humility. It takes submission to the Lordship of Christ because the ingrained patterns that we know are familiar and they're easier to maintain than to work through the process of genuine change. And I know as I get older and as I talk to my parents who are are retired and seniors, at some point you get to life and you're like, eh, (laughs) I don't need to change. I've been through enough change. I'm just going to enjoy the time that I have left. (laughs) Wrong answer. If you're not dead, you're not done. Like rewiring the pathways in our brain, we need to work at it long enough to create new pathways and new habits and new behaviors of living life together. Again, like I said at the beginning, it's not about changing the color of the carpet or or, or the decorations in the sanctuary or the flavor of coffee on Sunday morning. (laughs) It's about living life differently, guided and empowered by the Spirit of God. 1 John 3.11 said, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love love one another. It really does boil down to that. We should love one another. And ask, how do we do that? How do we do it well? And how do we teach one another to love each other well? All right, I have more to say, but we're way over time, so I'm going to close with the vision of 1 Peter 2, 4-6. Our invitation in the season ahead is that as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him,
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Men and women, I look forward to journeying together in the days ahead to discover what does that look like for us today in the 21st century in Sumner, in East Pierce County, in the Northwest Territories, of Washington State, where God has planted Faith Covenant Church to be a mission outpost on the mission field of the world that he gave his life to save. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and that you never turn away from us, but you always gently call us forward to remember that you've never asked us to do this life in our own strength and our own wisdom, but to throw ourselves on you completely, to submit to your lordship and in submitting to you, discovering the freedom to live life in the power of your spirit. God, we ask again that you would inspire us, that you would call us, that you would draw us out to become more than we are today and to become everything that you have intended us to be when you created us. And call this to your kingdom through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.